Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. So Cheryl, I want to talk about something that came up for me when I was creating a clip for our most recent bonus episode that we shared with our Patreon community this month. We shared a clip on your Instagram page. And in this clip, I said to you, I was talking about this unlived life I have in my mind of if I had gone to another college that I got into, which was Emerson College in Boston, and I had done their writing and publishing program and lived in Boston, I said, you know, it would have been further outside of my comfort zone. I would have been farther away from my hometown, my parents' house. I would have been living in a city. I might have gone into that writing and publishing field. And I said, sometimes, you know, I I wonder if today I would be more competent, confident, and independent if I had gone to that school. And when I was watching myself say that when I was creating this video clip, I felt this like sting of why do I think or feel that I'm not confident, competent, and independent enough right now? Mm. And I kind of was imagining, you know, like one of my good friends watching that video clip and just being like, why do you always say this stuff about yourself? (laughs) Like, you know, I have good friends who reflect back to me, you know, like, this is not how I see you, Victoria. Like, I see someone who is competent enough to hold down a job and drive yourself wherever you need to go and file your taxes and, you know, someone who's confident enough to podcast and share your poetry and music and, Um, Someone who's independent enough to, you know, pay your own bills and live alone a lot of the time. Like what, what's going on with how you're 
reading the situation. Mm. And it got me thinking about being an English major. Maybe 11 or 12 years ago, I took a class in literary theory. And this one discussion has always stuck in my mind about feminist literary theory. And this one idea that we should practice being resistant readers of texts because so many of the books that we read were written by white men who did not really have women's concerns or women's strength or respect for women in their consciousness when they were writing these books. And we can't just kind of swallow their message unquestioningly because a lot of the messages in a lot of books are they can be pretty sexist and racist and classist and you know in a lot of these classic novels that you read in an english literature program or um and so there was this invitation to become a resistant reader mm. who could read a, a text read a story and even if you can tell what the author was trying to say or trying to teach you can resist that message or narrative or that interpretation and come up with your own interpretation mm. and recognize like what are the gaps in this story or um, where is like the author's bias showing or where is the the sexism or the racism showing or, you know, even is this character that the author is presenting as like a villain, do I actually see like a lot of power in this character, not in a villainous way, just in a way that maybe that this author is afraid of that person's mm. power. Mm. And so I just thought, what would it be like to be a resistant reader of my own stories about mm. myself and my experiences and my life, like to practice resistant reading and not just swallowing the knee jerk or habitual mm -hmm. interpretations and messages and narratives about who I am and how I am. Mm. I think this can be really sticky for people like me who just experience a lot of self-criticism and self-judgment. Like that's so strong for me. And, and also just a lot of questioning around enough, like, am I enough? Do Have I done things well enough? Or have I done it right? Like, even in the realm of unlived lives, I think my, my expectations are really high and really unforgiving and, and just really, um, I'm not sure that they could ever be met because there's often just this ideal that I've concocted through a mixture of maybe things I took in from the media, things I took in from comparing myself to other people. And then just this general, like you said in that Unlived Lives episode, this general sense of like wanting things to be perfect in a way that they just never can be in real life. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating, I think, to, to think very explicitly about about these things that we think and say about ourselves as stories that we are writing and stories that we are interpreting and to really question, to question our own interpretations. Mm. 
because we're not always reliable narrators and we're not unbiased authors. <laughs> so I'm curious just to hear where that lands with you, Cheryl, when you think about the clients that you work with, the minds that you get to really get to know through your work mm -hmm. and possibly mm -hmm. even in your own life. Yeah. I'm curious before I answer that. Yeah. I think we become so deeply entrenched and attached to our stories about ourselves. And sometimes the negative ones, the critical ones, more than the positive ones because they're familiar and we like what's familiar. We find yeah. safety in familiar. And so even though it's hurtful to ourselves to tell ourselves these stories through only this critical lens, it can be difficult to defuse from it and even entertain the possibility of another interpretation. So I'm curious, when you saw that moment and you were watching yourself and you sort of heard your friends offering their resistant reading, like, hey, why do you think you're not competent, confident, and independent? And you questioned this longstanding interpretation, were you able to take it in? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit is good. Yeah. Like there's a voice in my head often that's like, well, I might seem this way, but I know that deep down I'm <laughs> really like this. Like if people could see in my head. I even... I'm very fascinated by the concept of confidence and I I brought it up with a someone who I'm doing a group project with in my counseling program in one of my classes just that I struggle with confidence and she was like that's so weird like you seem very confident and knowledgeable hmm. like you present well and so it's very interesting. I can see the disconnect and sometimes I can almost see like, okay, I can kind of see maybe how this person is seeing me, but I know the real me. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting because the more that I can see it as parts, yes, the more I can start to kind of try to put a little space around that. Yes. I think it's also a protective mm -hmm. maneuver. Yes. There's this sense of, I don't want anyone to catch me off guard mm -hmm. with their criticism of me or their, their interpretation of me. So mm -hmm. I will beat them to it. <laughs> I will see everything that's wrong with me. So I know and I can prepare to protect myself. I think I have this very deep fear of being criticized, being scolded, which is an interesting word, but that's hmm. how it feels, um, being told that I'm bad or wrong in some way. 
And so it's like I'm constantly trying to detect that threat from within. Like, okay, what do I have? Mm -hmm. How can I beat them to it, basically? Mm -hmm. Hedge your bets. Cut Mm -hmm. it off at the pass. I'll get there first. Yeah. And I think a lot of that points to, which many roads point to shame and the belief, one of the beliefs that we carry, which is, I am bad, I am insecure, I lack confidence. And somehow another layer of the protection is, if I believe these things about myself, then I can somehow control how other people see me or control a situation or control my interpretation. So going back to early life, if I grow up with a parent who is unpredictable in any way or a home environment that is volatile or whatever it is, everybody has their home environment that's less than perfect. So whatever the home environment is and the young child assumes I'm not getting the love I need because there's something wrong with me. So going way back to the roots of the stories, none of which are true. None of those stories are true. If I were perfect, if I were more this, if I get perfect grades, then I will stay below the radar or I will be loved. I will get the attention that I need. Um, and if I'm not getting that, it must be because there's something wrong with me. So then we hold on. It's like holding on to that story. And so I ask you that question because I think it's so important to challenge our stories, both about ourselves and other people, because we're constantly telling stories. We're constantly really making up stories. Yeah. Right. We're just making them up all the time. So how important it is to come at it from a different angle and say, well, what could another story be? But I don't think it's so easy to take in that new, that other interpretation. Right. Just because you land on it and you can see it through somebody else's eyes. You can see it through your friend's eyes. You can see how this classmate could think that you are confident. And through one lens, you, you, you can hold that. Oh, yeah, I can see that these things I do require a certain amount of confidence. Going back to school, putting out a podcast, reading my poetry, sharing my music. But I think this is where the nuance and the paradox and, yes, the different parts, it's like we can be both confident and not confident yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It's not one thing. We're not just one way, right? We can put ourselves out there and be really scared. We can do something new and be really scared. We can be brave and scared. Mm. We can feel really loving and sometimes even in the same moment, not feel loving, feel irritated. And so it's like blowing open our very limited interpretation and our fusion with that interpretation 
of ourselves, of others, of our stories, of our emotional life. And then we're in the realm of a much more nuanced, complicated, multi-layered, paradoxical way of being. And like we were saying before we started recording, I think that that is both incredibly liberating and also totally terrifying (laughs) and feels like free fall to the anxious mind who is very attached to one singular interpretation. Yeah. And maybe one identity. Mm. Like I love what you're saying about acknowledging the rigidity we can have around I'm either confident or not confident. I'm either competent or not competent. When in actuality, it it varies depending on what, like, yeah, I wouldn't be a confident firefighter because I don't, because I'm not a firefighter, (laughs) but like, can I be a confident podcaster? Well, that's a different thing. I have all this experience. Um, and I, but I think what's interesting is that, you know, the stories we take in and then tell ourselves come from so many different places. Yes. And I, I just, as we are talking, I'm kind of having this realization, those things that I named like confident, competent, independent, I almost feel like I saw those as things that I shouldn't be when I was younger. Mm. That might sound really, really weird. But I just know early on I got this sense of like, you shouldn't be too confident. Like that comes off as braggadocious or obnoxious. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was a story I got about confidence, you know, and I think that can go for a lot of different things. And especially in the early years of being in school, at least I definitely absorbed a story around confidence that was like, yeah, be confident, but don't brag. Mm -hmm. Like, don't think too highly of yourself. There were those phrases of like, she thinks she's so hot. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was the worst thing to think you're hot. Like, wow, can you imagine if someone thinks they're hot and that's a and that's a great thing? Yeah. Um, But again, I think we're in the territory of nuance and layer and interpretation. It's like, yeah, we don't necessarily want to raise our kids to think that they're superior or better than other people, but we certainly want them to have a solid sense of self. Yeah. And enough confidence to follow their dreams in life and be who they are and, you know, love others, be in relationships. And that all requires a, a certain confidence, not entirely, but we want that to be there. So I think it's like this idea of parts that you brought up. And I think and I think that is a very soothing, comforting understanding of psyche, which is very much exploding into the mainstream now with IFS, yeah. internal family systems. Um, but 
has been in psychological canon literature thinking um, for a long time. And it's certainly the methodology that I um, was educated in because it's it's Jungian at the core mm. is this idea of these archetypes that live inside of us, right? That we have an inner queen and we have an inner um, princess and we have an inner mother and we have an inner daughter and we have an, an inner crone. We have all these inner parts, right? And we have an inner, I'll keep it clean for Apple, but B word. We have an inner <laughs> yeah. B word. Yeah. No. <laughs> we, we have that part in us and how liberating it can be to embrace that part. And so do we have an inner part that wants to swagger around and, you know, be a Top Gun maverick? Like, I am hot shit. Well, now I just made it not clean. But, um, <laughs> oh, well. Um, and then do we also have another part of us that's like, I'm so small. I am nothing. And I think we all have these parts yeah. inside of us. And so I'm just getting this feeling as we're talking of, going back to the resistant reading of each of us is like a text. Yeah. Like I'm just seeing writing all over my body. Like I am a text. I am a text. And I can read, and, and I do read the text of me in different ways, in different times of my life, sometimes even in different times of the day. And to me, this is also where, and I know this is not a practice that resonates for everybody, but for me, the practice of journaling is so helpful in this area because we can take a word like confidence and explore it. What are my beliefs about confidence? What were the earliest stories I learned about confidence? What were the phrases and mantras and slogans that were thrown around at school around confidence? And we can approach these stories, these words, from a place of curiosity and exploration, like we are the text ourselves. And what's interesting too is like, you know, there's also these literary theories about a text has as many meanings as there are people reading that text, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 the same person every time they read it will read it a little bit differently because they have new experiences and new ways of looking at the world because of the life that they've lived in between their readings of that text. So. Yes. There's also the idea that we read other people too. Like I will often put other people on a pedestal while I'm kind of telling myself like, oh, I'm not enough 
in these ways. And then I'll put people on a pedestal who are, you know, who I see as very confident, competent, and independent, you know, those Mm -hmm. things in particular, which also isn't totally accurate and maybe not even fair to those people because I'm not really seeing, I'm probably missing things about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just reminds me, like I was telling you, Cheryl, before recording, that I'm pretty sure I heard Elaine Aaron in an interview, which I'm going to try to find because I can't remember where I heard it, say that highly sensitive people are very good at picking up on cues and shifts in our environments, like noticing someone's facial expression change or their mood change, but we're not always very good at interpreting those changes and shifts. (laughs) And so when it comes to reading and interpreting both ourselves and then other people looking out at the world, we also make up all sorts of stories, often very quickly and very protectively, about what we observe in other people, like someone's expression changes and we go straight to like, they're mad at me. They hate me. I'm annoying them. Yes. And speaking for myself, I'm often very convicted that Mm -hmm. I'm right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not often very open to another interpretation. Mm -hmm. It feels so true, but I'm not always right. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Again, it's like I am reading for all the warning signs. Like I went on a trip to Puerto Rico this past weekend for a short trip with Martin. And before going, I did the thing that I do before traveling. And I basically decided to make it my mission to find out every possible thing I should be afraid of about this trip. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look for warning signs and only see warning signs, you know, you can do that. You can see the world only through warning signs and you can yes. read you can read the world that way as just a series of warning signs and risks yes. and threats. But that is so not the whole story. Mm-mm. And it sucks a lot of the color and you know, laughter and Mm. juice out of our interactions with the world. And it's not the most likely story. Right. And when I checked in with you, because you were so scared beforehand about (laughs) mosquitoes, and I said, how's it going? And you said, I haven't seen a single mosquito. Yeah. That was the thing. I, I read an article two days before the trip about like, 13 things you should know about before going to Puerto Rico. And I was feeling all excited. And I got to number 13. And number 13 was like, there's tons of mosquitoes that carry disease. And Mm -hmm. that was all I could think about for the next 48 hours. And I bought, you know, special pants and a shirt and bug spray and all this (laughs) stuff. I didn't see a single mosquito the entire time. (laughs) Yes. So yes, yes. That's another great point that it's, it's not only like, not the only reading, it's not the most accurate. Just like looking at my partner and noticing an expression flash across his face, it's not necessarily accurate to say, oh my gosh, he's so mad at me. Yes. 
And again, I think this is where the, that conviction is, gives you the illusion of control. And yes. to loosen that up requires vulnerability. It requires some sense of free fall. If I'm not right in my interpretations, then what am I seeing? Because yeah. I know I, I'm like, like you said, we, we read cues and shifts very well. We are highly attuned to cues and shifts. Where we go awry is in the interpretation. And so if it's not the interpretation that I'm assuming it is, and I'm being asked to soften that and loosen my grip on my conviction, then it requires me sitting with the vulnerability of, well, what was that look? And I think one of the most powerful phrases we can say to ourselves, which has been popularized, I think, by Brené Brown, but it's very much embedded into Sue Johnson's work and EFT and attachment theory, is that when you see that expression, that you can say something like, I saw your face change. The story I'm telling myself right. is that you hate me right now. Yeah. And it feels so true. So it allows for another interpretation, even if we can't get there, even if we can't in our minds circle around to, huh, what else? Maybe my partner just like swallowed a watermelon seed or I don't know, like, like that face could mean so many different things. Yeah. Or maybe my partner just remembered that his mother's in the hospital and it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. And I'm seeing the frown and I'm thinking, he's mad at me. I know he's mad at me. But I could say, I saw your face shift. Sometimes I'll say that to Dave. I saw your face shift and he'll make a joke. He'll make me laugh so hard because he'll make some totally ridiculous face. He's like, like this? Did I do this? <laughs> 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 and I'm like, no, it's more like this. Like you, you're mad at me. And he's like, I'm not mad at you. No. So it, it opens up a lot, but it's a risk to let go of that familiar neural pathway and that conviction. Likewise, you know, tying this into how a lot of people have come to my work in the world of relationship anxiety but I think it applies to any kind of anxiety, is you notice a shift. You're, you're going along in your relationship. Maybe it's date one. Maybe it's 25 years in. And you notice something shift inside of you. There's suddenly this pit in your stomach. There's a flutter of fear. There's a tightness in your chest. There's all the signs of fear, anxiety. And you immediately interpret it as I don't love my partner anymore. Something's changed. Something's wrong. Oh my gosh. And there's the flaw in the interpretation. Something has come up. There is something happening in your body. And, but I think this is where also the explosion around um, somatic psychotherapy and somatic healing comes in because from the somatic, from, from the body approach, we're much less interested in finding an answer and figuring out the why. 
Mm-hmm. Right? The mind and the anxious mind, the Western materialistic mind, and the scientific mind is very attached to that pursuit of an answer, a singular, beautiful truth. And when you're in the body, we're much less interested in finding the truth. And instead, we're in this more kaleidoscopic, paradoxical, mysterious realm of, I don't know why my stomach just dropped. I don't know why my throat just closed. I'm not going to get hooked in the why because I'm right up in my head trying to interpret. Instead, I'm going to do my best to stay with this experience in my body. Sometimes, and this I think connects to the body and to like a deeper story before words. Mm. Sometimes we notice the look on our partner's face and they actually are annoyed at us. <laughs> mm-hmm. If that causes panic or like extreme defensiveness, mm-hmm. there's another story there that's like, if you are annoyed at me, if you are disappointed, mm-hmm. I can't handle that. It's not safe. Yes. I'm not okay. It feels like a story that's stored in the body, like before before we even get to words. There's this muscle memory feeling of like it's not safe for you to ever be anything other than totally pleased and happy with me Mm. like if you betray any sense of i'm not pleasing you somehow or i've done something wrong then the story is i'm wrong yes i'm bad like fundamentally yes right to that shame place yeah 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 and if i'm wrong and i'm bad then what right or even relationships can't withstand these sorts of disruptions or, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I think it's a really important point, Victoria, about the pre-verbal somatic stories, like the stories that live in our bodies that probably started before we had words. When we did, when there was a rupture of attunement, in very, very early life. And we made assumptions very, very early. And so, you know, going back to your initial introduction to this topic, I think that's why it can be difficult even when you come at it from another reading and you question, there's still a voice inside that says, but you don't really know me. Yeah. 
But I do think the more we question, the more it starts to trickle down and we start to embody different stories, new stories. Mm. And maybe they can live alongside the old ones and we can bring love and tenderness to the old ones. But we're also bringing in new ones. I mean, even in this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a resistant reading of, I think, the hierarchical way that we view even these three words, competent, confident, yeah. and independent. Like, why, is, why are those just good things? Right. So what would the opposite of independent be? Well, dependent, right? And isn't there value in that too? Yeah. And what would the opposite of confident be? Maybe humble. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe insecure. But it's like, well, we all have like getting out of good and bad. Confident yeah. is good and insecure is bad. Competent is good and being un- uncertain and maybe lacking competence around certain things is bad. Hmm. Instead of, well, we all have competence and insecurity and independence and dependence and a whole bunch of things in between because even those words that we pose as polarities are not, it's not just one or the other like that. There's, there's, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. There's a middle, there, there are things in the middle with all that. Like I think, you know, in between independence and dependence is interdependence, right? Yes. And in, and I think maybe like you said, maybe between confident and insecure, there's maybe humility and maybe in between competent and <laughs> totally incompetent, there's learning. <laughs> right. And that we're not necessarily striving for that middle ground either because right. I think we can get into right, trouble there right, too. Right, like, right. oh, well, then the best thing is to be interdependent. No. <laughs> right? Right. Sometimes we're interdependent and sometimes we're independent and sometimes yeah. we're dependent and needy and like, can it all be okay? Yeah. Can we widen the, the reading? Can we widen the script and the texts of who we are and how we how we read our text of who we are. Yeah. Can it be multi-layered? Can it not be a stagnant two-dimensional book, but like a three-dimensional up and down and all around? A pop-up book. A pop-up book. (laughs) (laughs) I used to love pop-up books. (laughs) Who doesn't? I love what you're bringing to this conversation. And I think that resistant reading is all over your work because it's like, you know, I was, I was doing a little reading on resistant reading uh, hmm. to brush up before this. And one example that I found was resistant reading of the Cinderella fairy tale and how, hmm. you know, it's often seen as this perfect idyllic romance, but a resistant reading might be hey, it's actually kind of sexist that the prince is picking a wife based on who has the nicest ball gown and makes the best chat with him over a few minutes of dancing at the ball. And <laughs> just a little, kinda, you know, kind of sucks that Cinderella's only 
path to freedom is to marry someone that she met for two minutes. Um, And so when I just think about a lot of your work around myths, particularly around love and Mm -hmm. partnership and all kinds of love and, and really doing resistant reading of the myths, the mythology, the, the cultural narratives that get passed down to us. Um, it's all over your yes. work. And I think it's yes. it's so helpful to view these stories on all these different levels from, you know, like the macro, the cultural and historical and institutional all the way down to that somatic memory from mm. maybe the time you were in the womb or mm. from very early on. Um, yeah. Yeah. And even honoring the gold in, in, in the stories, like not throwing it all out as a sexist, yeah. outdated, right? To be able to read it through an archetypal lens or mythological lens and extract the beauty of you know this archetype of the prince and the archetype of the poor maiden scullery, scullery maid who like what these fairy tales resonate deeply because all of those parts live inside of us. Mm. And again, we get into trouble when we only read it one superficial, very thin top layer way. Just like we get into trouble when we only interpret our thoughts and our own stories and our dreams through the most obvious top layer interpretation. Like I think what we're what we're bringing to light, what we're trying to open up in this conversation is let's go much deeper. Let's question from all different angles. Let's go around 90 degrees. Let's go around 180 degrees. And the other way too, the other side of the circle for um, in terms of how we, the stories we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm about ourselves, about love, about these ideals that we think we're supposed to achieve, about our partner's facial expressions <laughs> or our friends, right? All the assumptions that we make. It's a lot more fun and interesting too. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Once we get past the kind of free fall, uh oh, yes. you mean it's not just one way? Yeah. And I'm not just one way. What does that mean about my identity and who I am? And yeah. Yes. Yes. This has been really fun. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> really fun. And I feel like it brings together your um educational experience in mm-hmm. literature, like how you've been so steeped. Yeah. in literature in your life and bringing that lens to psyche in the psychological realm. Yeah. I love that that blending of mm. how do we read our psyche and the psyche of the world like a text. Mm. It's beautiful. Thank you. It's Thank really, you, Victoria. It's really fun. <laughs> really fun. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine, Imagine that. Right? bringing that sense of fun to the stories that we tell ourselves. Thank you. Thank you. 